Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship. To find info on our speaker and series, please check the podcast description. Thanks for listening, and enjoy! You know, we're enamored with royalty. Um, I don't know if you've seen The Crown or not. My wife and I watched The Crown, for better or for worse, but it's fascinating, you know? It's also devastating. Like, I mean, it's kind of tragic and sad and intriguing all at the same time. But we love royalty. There's TV series about royal dynasties of the past, and there's Disney movies. Oh, my goodness, princes and princesses, and on and on and on it goes. Every time I'm at the lineup in the grocery store, I see Hello Canada, you know, and you see this couple, right? One of them, anyways, Meghan and, and Harry. And they almost came to live in British Columbia, on Vancouver Island. But they were here recently for the Invictus Games that are gonna be held in 2025 in Whistler, and that's uh, kind of Harry's project and mission that, that he's involved in. And so they took in a Vancouver Canucks game, and the Duke of Sussex got to drop the puck for our very own Captain Quinn Hughes. And yeah, woo, one person who likes Quinn Hughes. <laughs> I have him in my hockey pool, he's doing great. But you know, 21 years earlier, the Queen did it for the same two teams, the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, you didn't know that little piece of history, eh? We're enamored with royalty. We just think they're amazing for some reason. Uh, My wife and I visited uh, Egypt recently. And while there, we went to the pyramids, right? Well, they're actually tombs, tombs of their kings, right? Tombs of the pharaohs. And, and their wives. And uh, we found out this one kind of interesting story about this couple. And that is that you will notice that the, the wife of the Pharaoh, her, her head is a little bit taller than her husband. And so our guide was in, informing us that this was to indicate the type of power that she wielded in the relationship and in governing the nation of Egypt. In other words, as one of the guys on our team shouted out, she's the neck. So we had some fun with that. Kings, queens, royalty. For some reason, we're into it. And our sermon series at Christmas is about a king. The king who has come. And if you were with us last week, you know that Tim Voth was taking us through an understanding of what this kingdom of Christ looks like. In the mindset that we have, we're quite removed from this idea of a sovereign who reigns over us. I mean, we kind of get it because we can watch the crown and we know about England and other countries, but it's not even the same today as like what it once was. We're, we're more about a, a democracy, right? Or a republic where we get to vote and we're citizens within this and we sense that we have some level of power within this system that we can vote someone in to govern and vote someone out. But with this idea of a king is quite foreign to us because we don't really quite understand what it would have been like. We can relate. But if you're a person in the kingdom under the king or the queen, you are their subject. Subject. Not a word that we use very often. One that kind of, you know, we repel against because I don't want to be called a subject. I don't want to submit. But that's the whole idea of a subject is you are under the subject of their rule and reign. Your allegiance is and must be to that king or queen. And if you want to resist, you can. But, you know, it comes with a pretty high cost, right? So we're kind of uh, not used to this thinking of being subjects. 
Now, King, um, last week when Tim was talking about King Jesus coming, he was talking about the kingdom and the fact that there's rival kingdoms. But this kingdom is language in the New Testament. We read it and we go, kind of, what is this all about, right? We kind of wonder, what is, what is this kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? And Tim helped us understand last week that they're actually the same thing. And that Jesus is speaking about a kingdom that's different than the ones that normally people would have been um, experiencing in their time. It's a different type of kingdom with different types of values than the kinds of values that would be in any other earthly kingdom. And he talked about this. He said, the first shall be last, and the poor are blessed, and the least are greatest. These are different kinds of ways of valuing principles within a kingdom than the normal kingdoms that are reigned by force and power, and you will obey, or off with your head. He also said that it's a mysterious kingdom because it's spiritual in nature. It's otherworldly. He used that term to describe what Jesus probably was referring to in John 18 when he says, my kingdom, this is before Pilate, and Pilate's asking him, are you a king? Are you king of the Jews? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And so there's a mysterious nature around this kingdom, and Tim helped us understand that the kingdom is the reign of God. And that God wants to reign here on earth, and he wants to reign in my life now. So spoiler alert about Christmas. Christmas is all about the king who has come. That the God who created everything in the entire universe has now stepped down into that very world. He created it. We sinned. We're under the curse of sin. As hard as we try not to, we do. We know it. And that God said, I have a plan to redeem, to buy back. And it includes me coming in the form of a human being, being born in space and time in this world, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the Christmas story that the king has come. And it should rattle our world. It should make us wake up. It should make us want to worship. It should make us excited because he's offering us something that nothing else in this world can offer. Oh, we keep trying. That's what Tim was talking about last week about the rival kingdoms. We keep trying to control things. We keep trying to look for what's going to give us meaning and purpose. And yet we know it's not. And the king has come and the king has come with a purpose and he has us in mind and he wants us at Christmas to know that truth so that we too will worship him. Spoiler alert, Christmas is all about the king who has come. Well, why does it matter? It matters because in order to get into the kingdom, you need to know the king, and you need to be his subject. And there is only one king, and his name is Jesus. Now, before we get to the Christmas story, I want to do a little history lesson. I'd say this from time to time, a history lesson. Nothing will put you to sleep quicker than to say, I'm going to give you a history lesson but I see you're not falling asleep, so that's good. I love history. In this case, it's biblical history, and it's a history about the first couple of kings in Israel, which most of you in this room know who they are. King? Good job. And the second one, King? Ah, well, let's find out. Let's find out. So here's how the history lesson goes. For a long period of time, God led the nation of Israel through his prophets and his judges. He appointed them. They spoke on behalf of God, and the judges ruled and reigned the way that God wanted them to, giving them victories over their enemies. However, a time came when the people of Israel asked for, or maybe better put, demanded of Samuel the prophet at that time, we want a king like every other nation. 
Oh, Samuel warned him, no, 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 you don't. Don't do this. Don't do this. And they said, no, we really want it. We want that, Samuel. Be careful what you ask for. God says to Samuel, give it to them. Give them a king. Israel's first king was Saul. He represented everything that the people wanted a king to be. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He was head and shoulders above the rest. He was the perfect kind of image of what people expected a king to be. This will be the one that leads us into battle and defeats our enemies around us because look at him. Oh, he's great. He had the perfect image except one problem. His character was flawed. Saul was a proud person. He became proud. He allowed the position that God had given to him to go to his head and he took on things he should not have taken on and it came in direct disobedience to God's command. And through that disobedience, God took the throne away from Saul. But it didn't happen right away. Saul eventually dies a disgraced death in battle where he takes his own life. After Saul's disobedience to God's command, God comes to Samuel and says, I'm taking the throne away from Saul and giving it to another. I want you to take some oil, go to Bethlehem, which would become the city of David, to the house of Jesse, and I will tell you which one of his sons you are to anoint. So Samuel goes, and he sees these seven sons come before him, and each one, God says, no, no. No, all seven. I mean, Samuel's thinking the first one's great, the second one's great, the third one's great. Okay, Lord, any of these look like good options. And God says, no, he rejects them all. And then Samuel asks, is there any more? Yes, there's one more, the youngest, and he's out taking care of the sheep. First, God says to Samuel, you are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel struggles with that. And then when he sees David come, God says to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And if you know the story, Samuel, um, you know, he rejoices in this. He's, he's delighted with God's choice. He believes that this is, you know, a good decision. There's a description in there of David that makes, him, makes us understand that Samuel is inclined to believe that God has chosen well. David will be king, but he doesn't become king right away. For years, David would not take the throne away from Saul. You know the story. Saul's out to kill him. David's in hiding. Back and forth it goes for a number of years. We don't know exactly how long, but it's a long period of time. Finally, the day comes when Saul, in battle, is overtaken by the enemy and uh, wounded and, you know, falls on his own sword and takes his life. Now, at that point in the story, you would think, great, David's been anointed. He's been waiting. He's been patient. Saul's now dead. Take the throne. But it didn't happen that way. Yes, he became king of Judah, one tribe of the 12 of Israel. Right away, it's his family. They come around him and say, we anoint you to be king of Judah. But the other 11 tribes, they do not. No, why? You want to know why? Because there's someone else vying to be king. There's someone else who is a son of Saul. Now, ready for this, because it's a mouthful. His name is Ishbosheth. Say that quickly three times. Ishbosheth. Yes. Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> and this son of Saul is vying to be king of Israel. And the 11 tribes aren't sure which way to go on this. Judah goes with David. The other 11 tribes for seven and a half years follow Isbosheth. So who's the second king of Israel? Yeah, he gets overlooked. But here's the point. 
After seven and a half years, David's men have been continuing to win battle against battle against battle because that's what happens when there's two kings. When there's two kings, there's two rivals, right? And one of them's going to win and one of them's going to lose. And that's exactly what's happening between the house of David and the house of Saul. And eventually David wins out. And then those other 11 tribes come to King David very wisely, knowing that now they have lost. They come to this king and they say this to him. All the tribes, here, I'll read it off my notes in front of me. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. Good little history here. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. Yes, well, if you know that, why didn't you support him right away seven and a half years ago? And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their leader, their ruler. Yes, well, if you know that too, then why weren't you... What's David going to do? Off with their heads? When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 33 years old when he, had become, when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Hebron. He reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. Are you putting this together? Is that making sense? This David, the most famous king of Israel, was the one that God gave a promise to. He promised him that his throne, his reign, would never end. And it went like this. Your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So not a temporal kingdom that would end, but an eternal one. A kingdom of another kind. One that will never end the reason why I'm emphasizing this language is because we read about it in the Christmas story all the time, but we don't necessarily link it back to the history of Israel. The angel says to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, which means Savior. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. What? The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That should ring a bell. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, his kingdom will never end. And that's good news because it's not ending today. It's still going on. This kingdom still carries on. God is fulfilling the promise to the nation of Israel and to King David in the birth of Jesus Christ. When we read the Christmas story, we need to pay attention to the language that we're reading because it all gets meaning from the Old Testament. So when you read words like today in the town of David, well, what's, what's the town of David called? Bethlehem, right? The town of David. Bethlehem, there would be one who comes, who will be the ruler, who will be the Messiah, the anointed one that will rule forever. And that's what this verse tells us. He's been born to you. He's the Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew for anointed. Christ, anointed is Greek, right? So he is Christ. He is Messiah. He is Lord. He's Lord. How many are there? There's only one Lord of Lords. There's only one King of Kings. And it's Jesus. The promise of God that was made to David is coming true in the Christmas story. But the Christmas story speaks about more than one king. And I want us to look at this because when there's more than one king, there's a threat. There's a rivalry. And there will be war and there will be death. That's what happens when you have two kings. Someone is going to win. So let's read the Christmas story. Let's just look at these two kings idea. And uh, this particular reading that I'm going to give is from Matthew chapter 2, which actually happens after the birth of Christ. So this isn't right at the manger scene birth of Christ, right? It says after. 
And we wonder, well, how long after the birth of Christ did this take place? I don't know exactly. No one does. But you'll note in there that in the story that we're about to read, it doesn't refer to him as an infant, but rather as a child. It also refers to Herod, who inquired of the Magi, when did you see the star? And so then he issues this decree to kill the baby's age two and under. So we know that he's somewhere between the age zero and two years old when this story takes place. Now, it's a long reading, but it's a great reading because it reads as a story. So... Let's read it together. Track with me here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they, they replied, for this is what the, prophets, uh, the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly, then Herod called the Magi secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard that after they had heard that the king, pardon me, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he'd heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. I love this part of the story. It's like a chess match, right, between what God is up to and what this evil king Herod is trying to do. And you can hear the language in there about these rival kings, right? 
and the, the threat that this is because when they, the Magi, come, they don't go to Herod and say, where is Herod, king of the Jews? They go to Herod and they go to the people of Israel and they say, where is the one born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. Don't you think that maybe, just maybe, Herod feels a little bit threatened by this announcement that there's another one called king of the Jews? And he tries to use the Magi. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find them, report it to me so that I too can come and worship him. I wonder what kind of a worship service that would have looked like. What a liar, right? The Magi, they knew what to do when they met the king. Herod did not. The Magi come before him. On coming to the house, they saw the child, the mother. They bowed down and worshipped him. Silent night. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. They worship him. Then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There can only be one king, not two. And when you meet the king, you worship the king. That's the right response. Now for the best part of the story that I like is in having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return through another route, Right? When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Now, I don't know how you read this narrative, but I get right into it and I go, yes, another one for God. God has a plan. Herod has a plan. Herod is a king. Jesus is a king. He is the king of the universe. The king that's in power has swords and soldiers and can harm and God says, no, I will take you into safety. And he leads them out into Egypt and then brings them back into the land of Israel. God is working his plan for this king, the king that has come. In order to get into the kingdom, you need to know the king. And the king is Jesus. And when you meet him, you worship him like the Magi worshipped him. This is nothing more, nothing new to us than the Old Testament command that you should have no other gods before me. It's the understanding at Christmas time that we're reminded again and again that Jesus Christ is the one who we worship. The first of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. That means that you are to acknowledge him as the supreme being of the universe. He is the one and only one that you will bow your knee before. When Jesus talked about his kingdom, he was addressing issues of the heart as to whether or not you would bow your knee before God. And it was reflected in our priorities in life. Priority number one is God himself. You can't have two kings in your life. Your attention will be divided between the two. Your loyalty can only be to one of the two. You can only be a subject of one king. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. That's polarizing extreme language that simply says you cannot have two kings, two lords, two masters in your life. There can only be one. You either be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, money's not the only thing. It's not just limited to money. You can add in there all sorts of things which Tim was talking about last week. Your reputation, your achievements, your um, respect and education fame, all those kinds of things, entertainment. There's many things that can run as a rival kingdom to God. But you know, there's things that run as a rival king to God as well. 
who is on the throne of your lives. There's this work done by Bill Bright and uh, what used to be called Campus uh, Crusade for Christ, which is now called Power to Change. And Bill came up with this little picture of a throne, and it's the throne of your life, and the S stands for self, and the cross is Christ. And, and the idea here simply, in keeping with the message that we have today, is that there cannot be two kings on the throne of your life. There can only be one. And I, I believe that for most of us, the the who part, who is my king, usually is me. That's my fight. The fight is between having me on there, the self, right, versus this picture, which is Christ, with all those words trying to define what it looks like when Christ is on the throne of my life versus these words that define what it looks like when I'm on the throne of my life. Now, there is an occasion whereby you come to a point in time in history when you realize Jesus Christ is my Lord and you bow your knee, you get baptized, you declare him as your Lord. That happens once, yeah. But you know what? There is an ongoing wrestling of the heart whereby we struggle to ensure that Jesus Christ is truly on the throne of our lives. That is what discipleship is about. That is what sanctification is all about. That is what it means to follow Jesus. Come follow me, he says. It's not just once, it's ongoing and we wrestle with this. And what we're wrestling with is this. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Don't let anything rival Christ as Lord in your life. Revere him. For some, it happens quickly. For the Magi, they knew, they came with gifts, they bowed, they worshiped. But you know, there's many people who are more defined by the spirit of Herod, where it's a hardness of heart, whatever it might be, fears, doubts, disappointments, anger, whatever it might be against God that hardens the heart to say, I will not bow. In fact, I am against him. I am opposed to God. But then I think there's a lot of people, and I think it could be the people in this room where we go, no, I'm not maybe either one of those two. Yes, I've bowed my knee to Christ, but I'm wrestling. I'm wrestling with the lordship of Christ in my life. I'm wrestling to truly bow my knee to him every day in my life as I follow him. And I think if we look at the story about those Israelites when King Saul died, but he still had a son, but David had been anointed, and David is now just the king of Judah and not the king of all Israel, maybe our lives are more like those people who are just waiting to see. I just, you know, I just need to know who's going to win before I bow the knee. Is it this king or is it that king? Now, the way it relates to our lives is, is it me or is it him? I just, you know, God, if you could just overpower me, force me to bend my knee. That's not the way God works. God is continually showing and revealing himself to us that we might willfully, of heart, out of love, bow our knee before him. And when we bow our knee before him, he goes, yes, you're my child. But we struggle with that. And sometimes we're just waiting, waiting to see who will be the king that wins out. But don't wait. Now, today is the day of salvation, the word of God says. God offers you something. You must take it. You receive it or you reject it. Maybe you're disappointed with Jesus. The Jewish people sure were. In fact, you know, they expected this Messiah to come and be an earthly king like they had demanded of God earlier to give us an earthly king like Saul to go out and fight for us, right? Rejecting God, trusting in man. When the Messiah came, they were not looking for this carpenter's son, who displayed meekness and humility and went to the cross and died. How does that look like the conquering Messiah? Maybe Jesus disappoints you like he disappointed them. But God was up to something so much more. He didn't want to just rule in one place for one people. He wanted to rule in every place and for all people. He didn't want to rule for just a point in time 
He wanted to rule for all of time. And he didn't want to just give us a temporary victory over one enemy that we might have. He wanted to give us an eternal victory over sin and death for eternity. You see, God's plan of what's going on in the Christmas story goes way beyond the human and earthly element and the things of this world. And that's why it's good news that this king has come. But he demands something. If he's truly going to be the king of my life, then it, I'm his subject. There's a demand for allegiance to him. There's no way around this. Either he is the king of my life or he's not. And if he's the king of my life, that means I listen to his voice and I submit my life to him and I obey him and I live for him. No, not perfectly. I'm in the same world you live in. I struggle like you struggle. But the truth of the gospel message is that there can only be one king and the king is Jesus. And when we bow our knee before him, it comes with amazing privileges like forgiveness of sin and eternal life. The Christmas story is about understanding that the king has come and that you have a choice to bow your knee today or one day you will bow your knee but it'll be too late at that point. Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, there's coming a day when everyone will know and everyone will bow the knee. The point about Christmas is to say, be like the Magi. Come and bow your knee now. Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and we've come to worship him. And the reason why this matters is because in order to get into the kingdom, you need to know the king. Who is the king? It's Jesus. Do you worship him? Worship him this Christmas. He is our king. I invite the worship team to come up at this time, and we're going to sing a new song uh, to the life of our church. You maybe have heard it if you listen to Praise 106.5. They've been playing it this Christmas season. It's written by Phil Wickham, and it's called Manger Throne. And it's this whole, you know, unique idea of the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to establish in us. And he did it through a different means, through the means of the manger, not the means of the palace and a throne. It's a different kind of king, and we worship him. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.